When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies, the podcast where we dive into the story of baseball and the players who help shape it and make it the game that we love. I am your host, Daniel Port, here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network. We're here on a Saturday because it turns out we've shaken up the schedule a little bit here, so you'll be catching me now on Saturdays. Really excited about the new time slot here. I hope this is a convenient uh, time for you all to get to get our episodes, make for some nice weekend entertainment here as you're you know, driving out maybe to a ball game or hanging out with the kids or whatnot. I hope that this is a good, some good weekend fun for you here. Now, if you remember correctly, we last week started a new series I'm testing out where we're taking sort of a genre or a prototype of a player and seeing who historically has fit that prototype, but then also then eventually going to talk about who we think today fits that prototype. And we started talking about Ken Griffey Jr. And then this week, we're talking about Ricky Henderson. And I'll give you a word of warning. It turns out that there's just so much to talk about, so many fun things, so many stories, so many anecdotes about Ricky Henderson that it ended up being a huge podcast. I'll give you an idea. I usually write about eh, anywhere from 10 to 15 pages of notes for an episode on this podcast. Now, I got about halfway through Henderson's career and was at about 22 pages. That's just how much people want to talk about Henderson, how much people want to write about Henderson, and the kind of cultural impact Ricky Henderson had on the game. And so what we're going to end up having to do is split this into two episodes. We have part one this week, which will get about halfway through Henderson's career. I think it ends up reaching a pretty good stopping point. But then also, then... I think next week we'll wrap up the rest of him in his pot, in his career. Then we'll rank him. And then we'll try to talk about some of those players I was talking about that might be today's versions of Ricky Henderson and Ken Griffey Jr. So this will be a two-parter. So just be aware of that. Part two will come out next week. With that in mind, let's get started. So last week we talked about the King of Cool. The King of Cool in Ken Griffey Jr. And... I spent a lot of time wondering who to talk about this week that, you know, fits into that category of who were the players that seemed born to play the game and just oozed coolness and greatness in everything that they did. And there have been a ton of players throughout baseball history that fit this persona, like Frank Robinson, Bo Jackson, the Bash Brothers, or Ozzie Smith. But I wanted a different kind of cool. As a kid in the 90s who grew up in the world of sports history for kids that really tried to present the full gamut of sports available. I loved a lot of different sports growing up, but other than baseball, I was in particular drawn to basketball. That was my one true love outside of baseball. 
And one of the things I always loved about that sport was that there was a little bit of an edge to basketball. There was more swagger and a sort of smooth, confident cockiness to the game that I'll be darned if it wasn't appealing. I feasted on the Jordan Shrug game or stories of Larry Bird playing a game left-handed just because he was bored. I was raised on Iverson stepping over Ty Lue and Sean Kemp's dunk over Alton Lister and Shaq breaking backboards at will, it seemed. I knew a lot of people where I grew up. My, my hometown just outside of Cleveland was, it was very white and old-fashioned in a lot of ways. And they often besmirched this type of athlete, but I ate it up. I loved it. I thought it was as cool as all get out. It's simple as that. And probably the way that I will never be cool is I called something cool as all get out. But nonetheless, and I'll admit, like I said, it was a different kind of cool than what you mostly saw in baseball. And a different kind of cool than Ken Griffey Jr. exuded. Uh, I wondered in my head. If there was a baseball player who fit that same kind of cocky, confident coolness that I so strongly identify with basketball, and really, almost immediately, only one name felt like the right one, and that's today's topic, Ricky Henderson. Henderson just seemed to ooze swagger in a way no one else ever did in my lifetime watching baseball. While we saw in Griffey an effortless, graceful gift from the baseball gods, to play baseball. Like, that was what he was put on this earth to do. Some of Griffey's coolness came from a deep desire to prove himself to everyone, to become the player he knew he was, and that he, and to prove to us that he could be the greatest ever. Ricky Henderson wasn't there to prove anything to anyone. He was there to show us what he already knew to be true. No one believed in Ricky more than Ricky. To him, he wasn't out to prove he was the greatest. He already was the greatest the moment he showed up. And for the record, just to get this out here, I'm usually pretty strict with myself about not referring to players too often by just their first name. It drives me crazy when broadcasts do it. And I don't know these players. And I wouldn't want them to think if they heard this or if their loved ones or anything heard this, which I'm almost positive none of them listen to my teeny tiny podcast. But if they did. I wouldn't want them to think that I am being disrespectful or making assumptions on our relationship when I've never even met these people. And the thing is, in this case, I'm making an exception. Famously, Ricky Henderson would often refer to himself in the third person in interviews, conversations, you name it. So somehow it feels right. To give you an example, in his write-up for the Athletics Top 100, Joe Pesnanski quoted Henderson as saying, listen, people are always saying, Ricky says Ricky, but it's been blown way out of proportion. People might catch me when they know I'm ticked off saying, Ricky, what the heck are you doing, Ricky? And they say, darn, Ricky, what are you saying Ricky for? Uh, why don't you just say I? But I never did. I always said Ricky. And it became something for people to joke about. And that right there, I think he says, he calls himself Ricky, what? One, two, three four, five, six, seven, seven times in that paragraph. And it became this thing, this long-running thing with Ricky Henderson. And it was somehow simultaneously both ridiculous and really cool. I, I, I loved it. Like I said, as a kid, I ate it up. I loved it. And this is the thing about Ricky Henderson. While I'm here comparing Henderson to Griffey, Junior Griffey was the kind of story you later take reality and write into myths and legends. He played in a way you should write tall tales about. 
but was still grounded in reality and the things that actually for sure happened. And in a way, Henderson reminds me more of Satchel Page, where it's almost impossible to separate the myths from reality. And it's easy to see how this happened with Page, where it was before the real age of mass media. We didn't really keep great records of the Negro Leagues at the time. So it makes sense that he had all these sort of myths and legends and stories surrounding him. Because for a lot of it, we literally only have the myths to go by. Especially also Page's own words, which were often exaggerated and built into tall tales of their own. And really second stories from those who were surrounded by Page and awed by Page uh, and played with him. And that builds into this big sort of mythos around Page. But it was understandable for that time period. With Henderson, we're talking about the 1980s and 1990s. Reporters and media were everywhere. And we had the research and the abilities to separate the legends from the truth as it came to Henderson. And a lot of the stories that are told about Ricky have been debunked. But we tell them anyways. And some of them we don't even try to debunk. Why? Because it's more fun. It is more fun if we believe them all. Baseball is more fun if we believe them all. It's that simple. We celebrate the legend of Ricky Henderson and the stories surrounding him because baseball is better when we do. And with that in mind, before we dive into the numbers and the stats, which are all outrageously impressive, I figured I'd share a couple of these stories just to give you a sampling here. In the early 1980s, the Oakland A's accounting department was freaking out at one point. They were going through their books at the end of the year, and the books were off by a million. And after an investigation, it was uh, determined that Ricky was the reason why I was off by a million. And before you start thinking this is some kind of embezzlement scheme or something, they reached out apparently to Ricky and asked him about the $100 million bonus he had received because apparently it had never gotten cashed. Turns out, What Ricky said was, instead of cashing it, he framed it and hung it on a wall at his house. It's just hanging there on the wall, million dollar check. It's insane. One time Ricky struck out, and as the, according to the next batter, this was was walking past him, he swears he heard Henderson say to himself, don't worry, Ricky, you're still the best. Uh, A reporter once asked Henderson if Ken Caminiti's estimate, this is back when, for those of you who may not remember this, and we'll do Ken Caminiti someday, but... He had once, in an interview, I believe it was in the 90s, had laid out the accusation that uh, over 50% of the league was on steroids. And so a reporter asks Henderson if if Ken Kemenetti's estimate was accurate. Here's Ricky's response. Ricky's not one of them, so that's 49% right there. These are the kind of ways he talked about himself. This is the way he talked in interviews. It was incredible. It was so much fun. It had so much personality and so much charisma And to borrow the spinal tap phrase, it just always felt like he was turned up to 11 in terms of his swagger and confidence. I think done poorly, it would have come across in a lot of ways, especially if he didn't play as well as he did, it would have come across as like a caricature. Instead, I don't know how to say it, it came across authentic. It it really did. It was wild. And to keep going, apparently, and this is a legend, and no one's ever really truly verified it, but it's one of my favorites. Legend had it that before every single game he played, Ricky Henderson would stand completely naked in front of a full-length locker room mirror and say, Ricky's the best, to his reflection for several minutes. Just repeat that mantra, Ricky's the best, over and over. And that's how he got himself pumped up for a game. 
And that's just incredible. I love it so much. I think I think I've tried it before, but I, I do not think my body in in a mirror strikes the same sort of confidence. So uh, I found it ineffective, but it seemed to have worked for Ricky Henderson to keep going. A, a reporter once asked Ricky if he talked to himself. His response was, "Do I talk to myself? No, I just remind myself of what I'm trying to do. I never answer myself, so how can I be talking to myself?" Just love it. Another one goes that the Mets were staying in a hotel less than a mile from Synergy Field in Cincinnati, right? This is before Great American Ballpark. While some players walked, most took the team bus. And according to the story, a few minutes after they arrived, again, it really was like less than a mile. The last players off the bus noticed a stretch limo that had just pulled up. And lo and behold, of course, out from the backseat of the, the stretch limo emerges Ricky Henderson, Rents the stretch limo to travel a mile. And multiple players have told that story. Just love it. Will Clark, when giving a story, when asked to give a story about Ricky Anderson, or basically, I think, I believe the, the question was, who is his, like, his favorite player, the funniest player he'd ever played with, right? And Will Clark decides, he says, and I, and I quote, the funniest hands down was Ricky Henderson. When he was at first base, he always talked in the third person, saying, Hey, Thrill, Ricky here. Thrill was Will's, Will Clark's nickname. He was Thrill, so to say. And so he says, Hey, Thrill, Ricky here. And I go, I know Rick. And he's got the whole sign put on. He's getting mad. Ricky wants to run. And I said, Rick, go on, go ahead. on." And he goes, You got it. Ricky gone. And as Clark continued to tell the story, that he basically had this sort of approach. Ricky had this look and approach that he would have when he got ready to steal a second, steal a base. And so Clark continues and says, I look at the dugout there to manager Roger Craig, and he's looking at me and I go, he's running right here. Uh, so we pitch out. And Ricky slides in because he's the best there ever was. He slides in second, uh, safe at second base. He jumps up and he's pointing at me. I, I told you, Thrill, Ricky gone. And like, how do you, it's just great. It's just, it's almost, I grew up on Major League. I'm from Cleveland. Trust me, I've seen Major League more times than you can count. I I think basically every single fantasy baseball team I've ever had is named after some quote from the movie. I could quote most of the movie to you. And Ricky, clearly, it's clear as an adult, Ricky Henderson was the inspiration for Willie Mays Hayes. And it's so funny because if you told me any of these lines were Willie Mays Hayes lines, uh, I would have believed you. And instead, there's something a real person said. And instead of being ridiculous or funny like they are in... They are funny. But ridiculous they are in the movie. They're just cool. They're just great. And I love them. Jason Stark tells a story that he once approached Ricky Anderson to tell him about Lenny Dykstra. This is right before, I believe, the 93 World Series. And he's approached him on the field. And he starts to tell him about how Lenny Dykstra, who was the leadoff hitter for uh, the other team, had scored 143 runs coming into the, the World Series, or go, basically going to the playoffs. And Ricky's response was, who's Lenny Dykstra? And Stark, Stark says he laughed and goes, well, he's the other leadoff hitter. Ricky Henderson's response was, there ain't no other leadoff hitter but me. And Stark pushed him on it, and Ricky says, what's Lenny Dykstra ever done? And Stark says he tried, started to give him the stats and all these things, and Henderson cuts him off and says, Man, why are you trying to compare some other guy with Ricky? There's only one Ricky. And that is just, again, so Ricky Anderson. And it gives you this idea that, like, he had this persona that he he really cultivated to the point in which you almost have a hard time separating if there was a persona from Ricky Henderson. 
and it's just so great. It makes it come off as so authentic. Um, it really does. And you hear that last line, there's only one Ricky. And that's honestly true. I, I don't think we've ever seen a player before like Ricky Henderson. And I don't know if we ever will ever again. I don't think we let players have that much personality these days or at least show that much personality. And I just don't know if we'll, we'll ever really see that again. And, and for the record, I'm just scratching the surface of Ricky Henderson stories. There are more to come, trust me. Now, that's all this is to give you color, to give you an idea of just part of why Ricky Henderson was cool. But this is all before we even get into his actual athletic accomplishments, uh, of which there are many. Bill James famously said that if you divided Ricky Henderson into two players, you'd have two Hall of Famers. And he's not wrong. In fact, to go back to Joe Pesdansky, he took a step further and claims that you could probably split him into three players and get three Hall of Famers. And he's also not wrong. If you think about it this way, Ricky Henderson is the all-time leader in runs with 2,295. That's a Hall of Fame player right there. He is the all-time leader in stolen bases with 1,406. Boom. That is also a Hall of Fame caliber player just based on that stat. And he surpassed 3,000 hits in his career, which again is a straight ticket to the Hall of Fame, pretty much. So any any of those stats on their own, in a vacuum, without the other ones, no doubt Hall of Fame ticket, right? Without question. But he had three of them. It's just incredible. And we'll go through this all. And as you start hearing these numbers, it's just remarkable. It's almost to a point where by the time we are sent down with these this giant two-parter, that you're going to maybe agree with me that Ricky Henderson's actually underrated in terms of his career. It's really fascinating to really dive into this and look at his numbers and look what he was able to accomplish. It's remarkable. To go back to those stolen bases, 1,406 stolen bases is nearly 500 stolen bases more than the second place finisher. He has 50 runs on Ty Cobb and is 14th all-time in war with 111.2 war. It's just 2.6 war behind Lou Gehrig, while only Bonds and and Ted Williams are ahead of him in war amongst left fielders. His career 401 OBP is 58th all-time, but only three players in the history of the game have played more than 3,000 games while maintaining an OBP over 400. Ricky Henderson and the other two are Stan Musial, who played most of his career, by the way, in the, four, in the 1940s and 1950s before integration, and Ty Cobb, who played in the 1920s. That's it. No other players than those three have done it. He was a 10-time All-Star to go along with three Silver Slugger awards and a gold glove. He's 12th all-time in runs created and 15th in win probability added. He's third amongst left fielders in Jaws, which is uh, Jay Jaffe's version of war. It's a little more oriented towards some of the seven-year peak numbers and certain other things that Jaffe added in. And it's especially effective for looking at Hall of Fame cases and whatnot. And actually, even if you keep going, despite not being a home run hitter, his 292 home runs, by the way, is still 29th all-time amongst left fielders. So not only was he so good at all these other things, where he just absolutely dominated but he was still the top 30 left fielder of all time in home runs, too. You know, I, the one famous number about him is that he, he is the all-time record holder for most leadoff home runs ever in a career. And it's interesting. We don't talk about him this way, mostly I suspect because of some combination of his attitude and his persona, and because he's a leadoff hitter, because that kind of changes the way we look at his production. Honestly, I, I think we're talking about one of the top players ever, maybe even a top 10 player of all time, when you really start looking at the numbers, it, it, 
you really it's hard to make an argument that he's not one of the single digit greatest players to ever play the game. Oh, and did I mention that he had a career 16.4 walk rate and a 12.7 K percent. So for his career, he walked more than he struck out and at a rate in which we would, you know, celebrate any one season in a player's career. If they walked that much, he did for his entire career while also doing that more often than he struck out. This goes along with a 132 WRC plus for his career and a 127 OPS plus as a leadoff hitter. Really, if you think about it, if you're trying to create a perfect leadoff hitter in a video game, right, going to the creative player on MLB The Show or something, and you try to create the perfect leadoff hitter, this is what you would create. I just don't think there's a better leadoff hitter really ever. I don't think there's a better leadoff hitter in the history of the game of baseball. End of story. I, I, I really genuinely believe that. And... There's an interesting conversation to be had here about the value of a leadoff hitter. We tend to talk about the big boppers, the guys who sat in the three-hole or with a cleanup hitter. And I think it sometimes causes us to devalue other spots in the lineup, like the leadoff hitter. You hear all the cliches about them being the table setter or the guy who stirs the milkshake of an offense. But I think the role often falls into that category of you only really notice the leadoff hitter if you have a bad leadoff hitter. And almost every broadcast when they show stats, will show batting average and home runs and RBIs, but rarely do you ever see runs displayed or walk rate or any of those things, even when the leadoff hitter's up. It, it just drives me absolutely crazy. Uh, for the record, a little uh, rant of mine is just that I don't understand in a world in which we have all the technology in the world, we have all the ability to set these things up ahead of time. Or as I like to say when I'm really mad, we've put men on the moon, yet we can't display different statistics for the leadoff hitter than the cleanup hitter, even though different statistics are relevant to those positions. Drives me crazy. I, I just don't understand it. Show runs when the leadoff hitter is up. Show home runs and RBIs and whatnot when the cleanup hitter is up. I, I just don't I don't get it. But anyways, moving on. It, being a leadoff hitter is a valuable role, and it requires a different skill set and asks different things of a player. And if you look at every great cleanup hitter, if you look at every great power hitter and, and guys who drove in all these runs, it's worth noting most of them are paired with at least one really great leadoff hitter as well throughout their career. It's just that simple. Someone has to get on base for them to drive in. It's the uh, joke. So I work in theater as my day job. And one of the the great debates is which is more important, the technical side, which is what I work in, or the actors. And you'll hear back and forth that the actors will say, if there's no one up on stage, you can turn on the lights and the sound all you want, but there's nothing going on. And we'll say, great, but you can go act in the dark if you want to. And both are right. You can't have one without the other. And it's the same thing. You can't have a great power hitter or a great run producer RBI hitter or whatever without a great leadoff hitter and you got to value them equally in my opinion but you also have to then take into context that we're going to look at different statistics and value different statistics when we look at one of those positions versus the other so I want to as we go through these numbers to view runs the same way we do RBIs and same for walks stolen bases doubles and so forth and uh, I think I've talked about this when I said stupid that we often view all positions in an aggregate like when talking about a third baseman the same way we do a first baseman in terms of their production and things like that. I think it's dumb. And I do really believe that it's the same for where players hit in the order. 
it's a different job. So anyways, let's keep that in mind um, as we do our, you know, sort of usual yearly journey through through Ricky Henderson's career. And we go over the stats and accomplishments and whatnot. Just keep that in mind. That's all. And we'll try to discuss that a little more as we go through. Okay. So with that covered, we are ready to jump into the life and career of one Ricky Henderson. But first, I know we're a little later than we usually do, but let's actually take our first break here and then we'll be right back. Fads come and go and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow, and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. Okay, so Ricky Nelson Henley Henderson was born on Christmas Day. That's right. He was a Christmas baby. Ricky Henderson was a Christmas baby in 1958 to John and Bobby Henley in Chicago. His father was on a large part of Ricky's life, and he left when he was two, which was subsequently followed by his mother moving him and his brothers to Arkansas. And then eventually Oakland, California, where she would meet Paul Henderson and remarry him, whose last name, because he would adopt all of Bobby's kids, Ricky and his brothers would adopt Paul Henderson's last name. Hence how we end up with Ricky Henderson, even though he's born uh, Ricky Henley. Growing up, Ricky took to sports like a fish to water and starred in baseball, basketball, and football. And while Ricky loved football best, his mother pushed him to pursue baseball. He actually left the decision up to her. He told her, which sport uh, do, am I going to pursue and try to go pro? And she chose baseball. Now, who knows how much foresight was involved in this decision beyond things like safety and security between the two sports. But it's worth noting that Henderson ended up being 5'10 and 180 pounds, according to baseball reference. There's not a ton of professional baseball players that size that make the NFL, let alone stay in one piece long enough to make a career out of being a professional football player. And I always talk about a turning point or a push that happens in great players' careers that gets into where they ended up. And in Ricky's case, it's entirely possible that turning point happened as early as his mother choosing baseball for him over football. Uh, it really is a huge and important decision that, that paints the rest of Ricky Anderson's career. And this obviously works out for Ricky as he does very well in baseball in high school. And the local hometown team, the, the Oakland A's, take him in the fourth round of the 1976 draft. And he wasted little time in the minors. And that year, in 1976, he starts off in low A ball, hitting 336 with 29 stolen bases and 34 runs scored across 46 games, while boasting a 463 OBP and a 985 OPS. Absolutely just comes right out of the gates, crushing baseballs. The following year, he's bumped up to A-ball in 1977, where he only gets better, hitting 345 with 11 home runs and an astonishing 95 stolen bases to go along with 120 runs in just 134 games played. 
I can't even imagine if someone tried to read that stat line to me about a minor league player. If, if you were telling me now about a current player, and obviously we steal far fewer bases nowadays. So the thoughts on stolen bases have changed. The way we look at them in terms of efficiency and how uh, productive they are in terms of scoring runs. But that's a lot of that has to do with how the game has changed. Catchers have gotten better. We've changed the way we look at how we score runs. And power is way, way up. It's important to remember, as we start talking about the 1980s, it's worth noting this was not a, a high-powered offensive era. So involved a lot of running. You had to manufacture runs in a way that you you don't you don't have to today. So keep that in mind as well. Just 95 stolen bases already in the minors just blows my mind. Now in 1978 he sees a promotion to the Double A, where he continues to flourish, stealing 81 bases with a 3.10 average and 81 runs scored in 133 games, along with a 4.17 OBP, which then leads to finally at the age of 20 in 1979, Henderson getting called up to AAA. He spends 71 games there before getting his first call up there to the show, and he would stick around. Now, at the time, uh, throughout the minors, we see really the first big like professional mentor show up in Henderson's life in the shape of A-ball coach Tom Treblehorn, who would teach basically Ricky everything he knew about stealing bases. When he would say, Ricky was quoted saying, when I got in the pro ball, Tom Treblehorn helped my base stealing, said Henderson. We used to sit up uh, and look at films. I look at Lou Brock and Ty Cobb, and those are my idols. Treblehorn was my manager in rookie ball, and then he moved up with me to Class A ball, and he was probably the biggest influence in my becoming a great base stealer. He took the time to teach me. He took time out individually and looked at the things I was good at. He took me and made me better. Plus, he also let me steal whenever I thought I could make it, and that gave me a lot of confidence. That was a big thing for me just coming out of high school, and I guess he saw something in me. And you can see that carry him throughout the whole minor leagues. And it's worth noting, um, and we'll talk about this when we get there, but for the most part, especially young Ricky Henderson, he gets the green light really whenever he wants it. And that's a big part for Ricky Henderson, is no one really ever tried to, to hold him back. Ricky do what Ricky does best. And I think that's a big part of how Ricky grew into a Hall of Fame caliber player. Now, once called up, Henderson performs uh, really well in 1979 for a rookie hitting 274 with 96 hits, 39 runs scored, and 33 stolen bases in 89 games. The A's are not good at this point. They won just 54 games that year, and they struggled to score runs overall in, in general. But it was clear from the very start that with his blazing speed, his on-base ability, that if you put some hitters behind Henderson, those runs scored numbers would be a much, much higher. And this all changes in a big way once the A's hire a notable manager Billy Martin to turn the team around and he does they actually finished 29 games better in 1980 with 83 wins and a big part of it was apparently Martin knew that the way at least Ricky tells it is that Martin knew that the A's did not have a lot of power they didn't have any real big power hitters and so Martin pushed the A's to put the pedal to the metal and so they played hyper aggressive they were just run from the first hitter to the ninth hitter they wanted to run and obviously no one benefited from that mentality more than Ricky Henderson. He's fantastic that season. He hits 303 across 158 games while leading the majors in stolen bases with 100. Yes, that's right. You heard me right. 100 stolen bases. That's crazy. Like, as a modern fan of the game, like, I can't even fathom that number. I mean, think about it this way. He only got on base around 300 times that season. So one out of every three times he got on base, he stole a base. 
unbelievable. And there's another way to look at this too. And here's the way I like to think about it. So that year, he didn't hit for much power. He only had nine home runs. He had 22 doubles. Didn't hit for a ton of power, right? Then this leads to him having an ISO of 0.96. Very low ISO. Again, no, no, really no power. He did have 111 singles that season. And so if you were to say, if you think about it this way, and I was thinking that if you go back to the Kenny Lofton episode when I talked about Kenny Lofton, Lofton had a very famous quote. He said it was basically... My job was to get on first and turn that single or a walk into a double. And I'm paraphrasing that. I forget what the exact quote is. But basically, that was his, his mentality, was to get on first base and turn that, that first base into second base to make a double using his legs. And even if you took like a third of those 111 singles or even walks or some, anything along those lines and turned those singles into doubles by stealing second base, which obviously he did a lot, that changes things. If we saw stat line that said say 63 stolen bases and 57 doubles we'd think about it differently especially in terms of his power output in a way that's basically what happened when you think about it and obviously i don't mean this literally of course because there's two steps to that then and so the the probability gets lowered a little bit because he has a chance to get out twice that sort of thing but the interesting thing to me is stolen bases aren't calculated obviously into iso the iso is basically the formula is taking the total bases, which doesn't count stolen bases, doesn't count walks, minus hits, divided by at-bats. And so if we grant the premise that stealing a base is like turning a single or a walk into an extra base hit, then how does this ISO change with 100 more total bases? It jumps all the way up to 265, which would be considered an elite power hitter today. And obviously, again, I don't mean this literally. It's more of a thought exercise to get you to look at Henderson's stolen bases numbers from a different perspective and to understand that speed can contribute in many different ways and that speed can essentially replicate many of the same the same outputs as power hitting does again it takes a little more effort takes a, a little more risk but for someone as fast as Ricky Henderson maybe there wasn't that same kind of risk and I, I think that you can then say that he added 100 extra total bases in there in that sense. Yeah, like I said, it's more of a thought exercise, but it, it's an interesting way to look at it and get an idea of just how effective his stolen bases were, is that it caused him to essentially hit. He was an elite power hitter without having to hit for power. Now, the, the 100 stolen bases that year, that's 12th all-time for a, a single season. And now he's named to the All-Star Game that year for the first time, and he finishes 10th in the MVP voting. Now, he probably shouldn't have won it that year because George Brett was absolutely unreal. He hit 390 with a 1.118 OPS, and he led the AL with 9.4 war, just slightly ahead of Ricky's 8.8 war mark, which is excellent. But there's certainly an argument that he was in the running. And so he probably should have finished like second or third. Definitely should have finished better than 10th. Of that year. That seems like semantics. It, it obviously, it matters when we look at the historical context and will matter when we get to talking about things like the list. Now, Oakland does finish in second place in the division that year, but unfortunately that wasn't enough. So they're left on the outside kind of looking in in terms of the playoffs, but that would not be the case for long. Now, 1981 was a weird year due to a player strike in the middle of the season. Disrupts things. There was no All-Star game that year. But it doesn't affect Henderson's performance when, when they're actually on the field. 
In 108 games, he had 319 with a 408 OBP and an 845 OPS, which, by the way, was good for a 151 OPS+. Plus. And that gives you an idea of the hitting environment that he was playing in, is that an 845 OPS was good for a 151 OPS+. Plus. Now, he leads the AL in hits with 135 and leads them in stolen bases with 56, as well as leading both leagues in runs scored with 89. In addition, he had six home runs, seven triples, and 18 doubles. He wins his first and only gold glove that year. Henderson's really, he was known for flashy defense, but was never known for being a good defender. And was probably, for the most part, an average at best left fielder for most of his career. And a little bit of center field that he played when he was with the Yankees. But that wasn't his only award that year, though, as he wins the Silver Slugger Award that year as well. And as I mentioned, there was no all-star game that year. He certainly would have made the team. But he does finish second in MVP voting. And Henderson absolutely has an argument for MVP uh, again this year. And also probably should have won as he was tied for the AL lead in war at 6.7 war. And that was a full 2.5 war more than closer Raleigh Fingers, who ended up winning the MVP award that year. And listen, it's not like a Juan Gonzalez level MVP highway robbery. But the wrong man absolutely got the award that year. And it's not as big of a deal for Henderson because, again, he has a true, no doubt, Hall of Fame, potentially top 10 effort type of career. So it's not like it costs him a whole lot in terms of his Hall of Fame case or anything like that. But it's always worth noting when a player should have won an MVP and didn't, at least here in this podcast, because it'll factor in when we, again, like I said, when we start looking at the list later on. Now, Billy Martin will be quoted that year saying Ricky by saying Ricky is a once in a lifetime player, said Martin. You see very few Ricky Hendersons. You might not see another one for 50 years. That's the man who coached Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson, and eventually Don Mattingly in his career. And this is what he's saying about Ricky Henderson. Now, Henderson isn't the only player who finds success for Oakland in 1981 as uh, the team finishes 64 and 45 and wins the AL West. Now, in the ALDS, they faced George Brett and the juggernaut Kansas City Royals, who were just running all over the AL at the time. And while Ricky is just 182 in this series, the A's actually emerge victorious, and they go to face Billy Martin's former team, the New York Yankees. Now, Henderson is fantastic in this series, hitting 364 with a 1.144 OPS to go with two doubles and a triple. But unfortunately, Oakland falls to New York in three games. So the A's are eliminated by the playoffs, and unfortunately, it would be another eight years before Ricky would actually see the playoffs again. Now, 1982 would bring one of Henderson's best seasons for the 23-year-old speedster, playing in 149 games while he hit just 267. He boasts a 398 OBP thanks to a 17.7 walk rate. He led the league in walks with 116, and he led the league in stolen bases with 130 stolen bases. Just take a second let that number settle in. 130 stolen bases. That is the second highest single season stolen base total ever. And the only guy ahead of him is Hugh Nickel with 138 stolen bases. Now, when did he pull that off? 1887. That's the most stolen bases in almost 100 years. And technically, that season was before the existence of Major League Baseball. So really, this season is the greatest stolen base season in Major League Baseball history. That's Incredible. Uh, like, again, fathoming 130 stolen bases is just 
It's kind of like trying to picture a million or something. Like, my brain just can't do it. It's insane. You know, think about it this way. Sorry. He had just 143 hits in with well, 10 home runs, 4 triples, which means that of roughly 245 or so opportunities to steal a base, he successfully did so 53% of the time. Now, it's not that he had a much higher success rate stealing bases, so to say. He didn't get thrown out 47% of the time. It just means that when he was on base, over half the time, he was going to steal a base successfully. That's how good uh, he was at it, and that's how often he ran. Like, at some point, you have to assume catchers and pitchers just assumed he was always running, regardless of the situation what was going on, and it didn't matter. He still stole 130 bases even doing that. Talking about this, Henderson would say, when I stole 130 bases, we didn't have home run hitters. We didn't have the players to do that. When we go to spring training, all we have were scrap players. And Henderson there, I think, means like scrappy players, not bad players. And Billy Martin would say, all we can do is run. Everybody's going to run. And, I mean, man, again, 130 stolen bases. Who boy did he run. Now, to give a little emphasis and more context here, if you look at our earlier thought exercise regarding ISO, Ricky had a .116 ISO in 1982. But if you add in 130 extra bases, that ISO jumps up to 3.358. That's incredible. That's Mike Trout puts up those ISOs in some years. Barry Bonds puts up those ISOs in seasons. That's how good Ricky Henderson was at stealing bases. That's how much it added to, to his output, so to say, by stealing 130 bases. It, it's just wild. Oh, by the way, before I move on, did I mention he scored 119 runs that year too? Yeah, uh, incredible. He makes his second All-Star game, and he finishes 10th again in MVP voting. And I definitely shouldn't have won the award that year. That belonged to Robin Yount and his ridiculous 10.5 war that year. But with 6.7 war, Henderson was third in the league and deserved a far better finish than 10th, as we have seen happen to him before. Now, unfortunately for the A's, while Henderson was fantastic, their pitching staff absolutely imploded. And so they would finish in fifth in the division and would miss the playoffs. Now, if you thought 1982 was good, though, honestly, while 1983 did not set base-stealing records or anything, it might have actually been a better overall season for Ricky. Across 145 games, he hits 292 with a point four one four OBP and a .385 OPS, which is good for a 139 OPS plus to go with 108 stolen bases. So, just 108 stolen bases and a 105 runs scored with 25 doubles, 9 home runs, and 7 triples. He led both leagues in stolen bases while leading the AL in walks for the second year in a row. He's an all-star again that year and finishes 24th in the MVP voting while finishing 4th in the AL in war with just 6.9, which is only 1.3 war behind the rightful winner and AL war leader in Cal Ripken Jr. Now, at this point, Henderson is one of the biggest shows in baseball. One of the best things about Ricky is that he always understood the assignment. He believed in making flashy catches and always being entertaining and was building a reputation and a following for being must-see baseball at all times. It reminds me of the attitude a lot of the Negro League players had, that they were there to be entertainers as well as ball players. And I've always really enjoyed that and respected that. And I'm going to make a side tangent here, but I think it'll make sense. 
in in sports and in entertainment, I've always appreciated people who get who they are and they get how they entertain people. And if that means playing up a certain aspect of their personality and dialing it up to 11, they just steer into the turn instead of trying to avoid it. I think of, say, Pitbull in music with this Mr. Worldwide persona or uh, Tom Cruise in acting like always tying the line between tiny charismatic underdog and actual lunatic. Like, they understand what we are there to see and they're willing to roll with it. Uh, and do I think that Ricky Henderson was genuinely that confident? Absolutely. I, I do think he was that confident. Do I think he played it up a bit because he saw it as his job to entertain as well as be great at baseball? Absolutely. Again, I'll make the comparison to Satchel Page, who also understood the myths and legends surrounding him would do more to cement himself in the story of baseball than any stat ever would. And I think Henderson got that too, I think. And... Oakland struggles that year, and that would place the team in a bit of a... They were stuck in a state of limbo between a team that couldn't completely compete yet and get over the hump, but also wasn't completely rebuilding. And that's a tough place to be. Now, this would carry over into the 1984 season where the Athletics moved on from Billy Martin, who would go to manage the Yankees uh, again. And the team started to shift towards a more power-heavy approach with less running which obviously doesn't play as well into uh, Ricky's skill sets. Now, Henderson's still fantastic that year. He hits 293 with a 399 OBP and an 857 OPS, which is good for a 146 OPS plus. But his stolen base total dropped all the way down to 66, which, by the way, still led the American League. And you can see some of the effects that more power-heavy approach had translating over for Henderson as, as he has a career high at the time, 27 doubles and 16 home runs. Now, Ricky has always claimed throughout his career that he could have hit more home runs whenever he wanted to. He just didn't think that was his job. He was the leadoff hitter. And his way to create winning baseball was to get on base and score runs to use his legs. And it reminded me a lot of talking with Andy Patton early on in the podcast during like season one about Ichiro who also made very similar statements about, I could have hit more home runs, I could have done these things, but understood his role and his the, the things he did best, which was getting on base and getting hits. And I understand it was an era where you could get away with hitting for no power, at least more so than today. But still, I respect the baseball IQ to understand what was being asked of you and doing what you do best instead of what you could do at an above average or average rate. There's a certain place where I respect that, even though maybe even hitting more horns might have gotten more notoriety or, or better results in MVP voting and things like that. That's not, that wasn't his job, and that's how he saw it. Now, he's an all-star that year, but doesn't receive MVP votes despite finishing tied for ninth in war in the American League. Again, shouldn't have won it, but probably should have gotten a couple votes. Now, Oakland struggles finishing fourth in the division that year, and with the team looking the head in the, you know, aforementioned power-centric approach. In the offseason, they actually trade Ricky back to Billy Martin and to the Yankees for the 1985 season. Now, back with his mentor, Henderson flourishes at the age of 26, with one of the finest leadoff seasons in baseball history. He hits 314 with a 419 OBP, thanks to a 15.1 walk rate to go along with a 934 OPS, which was good for 157 OPS+. plus. He leads the AL in steals with 80 and leads both leagues with an insane 146 runs scored. 
which is just crazy. That sounds like a number, if I were to tell you that number without saying the year, you'd expect it in like the high scoring era of the 1990s. That would make sense in the steroid era. But this is 1985. Just crazy. We also see continued progress in terms of Henderson's power as he slugs 24 home runs and 28 doubles that year as well. Now, for the Yankees, it was a, a bit of a roller coaster of a season as they battled all throughout the second half of the season with Toronto for the division lead. And while they would fall two games short, it was an exciting year for Yankees fans. And Ricky was really the engine that drove that team that year. And a lot of folks were talking about how he kept the team calm and was his attitude really was a was a a good clubhouse presence uh, in general. Now, Henderson was an all-star that year to go along with his second Silver Slugger Award and even finished third in the MVP voting that year. Now, this is another year where he absolutely should have won as he leads the AL in war with a 9.9 mark, which was a full 3.5 war higher than winner and teammate Don Mattingly, who likely won on the back of hitting 324 with 145 RBIs, and it was admittedly a bit of a almost like a lifetime achievement award. But also, it only put together just a 6.5 war that year. And really, there's just no way around it. Henderson absolutely should have won MVP that year. It's not full uh, like Juan Gonzalez MVP, Robert Zone, but it's pretty close. Uh, Ricky definitely absolutely should have won MVP that year. I, really no question in my mind at all. Now... Outside of a big drop in batting average, 1986 is practically a carbon copy of the previous year. He hits 263 with a 358 OBP and an 827 OPS, which is good for a 125 OPS plus. He leads the AL again in stolen bases with 87, and he leads the majors in runs scored for the second year in a row with 130 runs. He hits a career-high 28 home runs that year, along with 31 doubles as he continued blossoming into a more complete player. He makes the All-Star game again for the fourth consecutive season, and despite putting up 6.3 war, he doesn't receive any MVP votes. And again, shouldn't have won, but probably should have gotten a couple votes with that kind of those kind of war numbers in production. But unfortunately, probably part of the problem was as a team, the Yankees struggled pretty heavily while fighting Toronto for the division and end up finishing five games out of first, which certainly probably didn't help Henderson's chances. Now, in 1987, Henderson saw the first real injury of his career as a hamstring injury would cost him roughly 67 games that season. When he's able to play that year, he's very good, hitting 291 with a 423 OBP and a 920 OPS, which is good for a 145 OPS plus, while stealing 41 bags and and scoring 78 runs to go along with 17 home runs and 17 doubles. He does make the All-Star game that season, but again, the Yankees failed to make the promised land. And new manager Lou Pinella, that name sounds familiar, began to question Henderson and his willingness to play through the injury for the team, which kind of reeks to me of a, a new manager finding an obvious injury scapegoat for a disappointing season. And there were rumors that some of that was because Yankees owner George Steinbrenner was putting a ton of pressure on the team to win and win now, but it always, it always rubs me the wrong way. And apparently this also rubbed Henderson the wrong way, as this really sours things between Ricky and Lou Pinella. Now, whether this motivated Henderson or not, though, he's fantastic in 1988 as he's healthy all year long and he hits 303 with a 394 OBP and a 793 OPS, which is good for a 124 OPS plus. He steals 93 bases, which leads both leagues. And while his power disappears a bit, he hit just six home runs and 30 doubles. So you have to imagine it's 
a couple of those doubles go over the fence and it looks more normal, but nonetheless, he does score 118 runs across 140 games played. He's an all-star once again, and he finishes 18th in MVP voting despite finishing 7th in war in the AL that year with a 6.3 mark. Now, unfortunately, as is the, you know, sort of repeated theme during Ricky's career, Despite the great year from Ricky Henderson, the Yankees weren't able to really make any progress in the division, and that didn't change in 1989. Ricky struggles for the heading into the 1989 season, yeah, really for the first time for the Yankees, amongst the, the sort of turmoil of the team's struggles and his relationship with Pinella going south. He is just 247 with three home runs and 25 stolen bases in 65 games with the Yankees before being traded back to the Athletics for the final 85 games of the season. Now, at the age of 30, Ricky finally found himself back home, where his career had began. Only this time, the Athletics weren't the same team that traded him all those years ago. Little did Ricky know, the best was yet to come. Before we get to what changed, though, and what lay in the future for Ricky Henderson, let's take our last break here, and then we'll be back to wrap up part one of our podcast episode covering Ricky Henderson as we talk about his prodigal return to California. Welcome back. So Ricky Henderson had come back home to Oakland, and as I mentioned before, it was not the same team that he had left before. Billy Martin was no longer the manager, and his place legendary manager Tony Larusa had stepped into really his first big coaching role in the majors. And for the younger folks in my audience, it's worth reminding everyone that while his last five years or so managing and his struggles with drinking and driving, have done a number on his legacy. It's good to remember that LaRusa's won a lot of baseball games in his career, and that started really here in Oakland. And in addition, they had a young first baseman named Mark McGuire, who was in his fourth year in the league and was on the verge of surpassing the 100 home run mark at just 25. Jose Canseco had emerged the year before, hitting 42 home runs to form the vaunted Bash Brothers with McGuire. We talked about they moved on from Ricky the first time to create a more power-oriented team, and they had done just that. It was the perfect place to bring Henderson back into. Dennis Eckersley was closing. Dave Stewart was now the team ace. This was a team built to win, and that really just set Ricky loose. And it's interesting because the reaction to Henderson returning to Oakland was a bit of a mixed bag. The media didn't always view it as a good thing, and often they tended to paint Ricky as someone who wasn't a team player, who was a prima donna. And this angered Henderson, who was determined to prove the media wrong. And according to LaRusa, he had told Ricky when he first came over that he didn't need signs, that he had the green light really whenever he wanted. He was Ricky Henderson. But Ricky came to him and insisted on having signs because he wanted to show he was a team player. Now, this comes into a funny story, but according to Scott Posansky, this led to a pretty hilarious exchange between the two where the way LaRusa did signals, the last signal, if the last signal was a swiping of the arms, that meant to take off all the other sides, to ignore everything else. And Ricky had apparently interpreted that because he, according to LaRusa, literally used the words take off, that he interpreted to mean that Ricky felt he should take off and keep stealing bases, which, to be fair, he was doing quite successfully, I may add. Now, what LaRusa was telling him to do was to stay put, 
to ignore all the other signs and just stay where he was. And so LaRusse was telling him not to steal bases, and basically he'd watch Ricky then take the signs in and go steal a base anyways. So this is driving LaRusse crazy. So LaRusse goes to him and confronts him. He says, hey, Ricky, he said, all that stuff about being a team player, what gives? Henderson looks at LaRusse like he had no idea what he was talking about. We gave you a sign, LaRusse continued. Did you not see it? And Henderson said, yeah, I saw it. You said if you wipe the arm, that means take off. And so Ricky took off. And LaRusse really couldn't argue with that logic. I mean, again, he was doing it pretty darn well. It ended up being water on the bridge and moving on, but it's just a very funny moment between between a new manager and Ricky Henderson, who I think was just always looking for a good reason to steal a pace anyways. So... Henderson is rejuvenated in Oakland, and he's fantastic across the second half of the season, hitting 294 with a 425 OBP and 52 stolen bases and 72 runs scored in just 85 games. That's incredible numbers. His 863 OPS was good for a 148 OPS plus during that stretch, and he's a big reason why the A's win 99 games that year and finish first in the AL West. In the playoffs, Ricky absolutely catches fire. In the ALCS against Toronto, he hits 400 with a home run, a double, a triple, and eight stolen bases, seven walks, and eight runs scored in just five games. He's named the MVP of the series as Oakland advances to the World Series. Because it's worth noting, this is before the Division Series was a part of baseball. So he went straight from the ALCS into the World Series at this point in, in baseball history. And the... It's worth noting that the A's had lost the year before to the Dodgers in the World Series, so this time they I mean, desperately wanted the win, especially since they were facing fellow Bay Area rival the, in the San Francisco Giants. And from what I understand, a lot of people describe this, even though they don't play each other that often unless they came to the World Series, a lot of folks described it at the time as like Yankees-Red Sox, like that level of rivalry. And it was huge. The Bay Area was going bonkers over this ride, this World Series. And especially since I used to live there. I used to live in the Bay Area. And I can tell you that the, to them, this felt like their World Series. Like they, they was their own little party. So it was a very big deal. And and what ends up ensuing is, is perhaps the strangest World Series in baseball history, if I'm being honest. So the first two games are totally normal, right? Oakland comes out on top. It dominates, frankly. Uh, I think it wins 5-1 and 5-0 in the two games. Then during the pregame coverage of Game 3, disaster strikes. Literally, as an actual 6.9 magnitude earthquake shakes the Bay Area, knocking out the power at the Giants' home ballpark, Candlestick Park, and suspends play, obviously. It was a truly horrific event for the Bay Area as part of the Bay Bridge, which connects Oakland and San Francisco. Part of that bridge collapsed. Fires erupted throughout the Marina District over in San Francisco, and I mean, freeways collapsed. Oakland, overall, 63 people died in the earthquake. But as far as I understand it, no one at the ballpark was actually injured. Now, if you go and look this up, you can actually see on YouTube the TV footage when the power went out. And fair warning, it's not horrific or anything like that. They were actually showing when it happened, a highlight package on the broadcast. It's Al Michaels, and I forget who the other guy is, but they're they're doing play-by-play of a highlight. They're talking, getting everyone ready for the game. And suddenly it all just starts like fuzzing and going and starts shaking and then just goes blank. And you actually hear Al Michaels right before it go, Something along the lines of, hey, I, I think we're actually having an earthquake here right now. And then it cuts. 
And obviously, again, with hindsight, because no one gets hurt, it's more fascinating than than horrifying. So it's worth keeping that in mind. But you can actually see what it would have looked like if you are watching it live on television. I can't even imagine. There are a couple of really great oral histories on the event. It's only happened once. and It just is a wild thing that I've gone through. And I'd love to dive into and throw some quotes out there, but... We are all running very long on time here, hence why we're splitting this up into uh, two episodes, is because there's just so much to talk about here. That'll have to wait for another day. But in the meantime, what I would do is Google Earthquake Series Oral History, and you'll find a ton of stories about this crazy and tragic day. There really hasn't been a day of baseball history like this one. It's absolutely wild. Now, 10 days later, the series would resume, carrying perhaps a bit more symbolic weight than normal, almost like a, a sign that the Bay Area was healing, or at least that it was trying to. And it, it, the games themselves are fairly uneventful. Oakland would wrap up things pretty easily, winning the next two games and sweeping the series. Henderson is fantastic throughout the entire series, hitting 474 with a 524 OBP, with a home run, two triples, and a double across four games with four runs scored and three stolen bases. To quote Ricky's teammate, Carney Lansford, Ricky was on base in the 1989 World Series and Terry Kennedy was catching for the Giants. I walked up to the plate and Kennedy was talking to himself. He was saying, go ahead and steal it. You're going to take it anyways. Next pitch, he stole. Terry tried to be quick and dropped the ball. That's how he frustrated catchers when they were behind the plate. They knew he was going to run, but they couldn't do anything about it. And, and that's really a sign of just how stop, unstoppable Ricky Henderson was in that series. Uh, he was just driving the other team crazy, just causing chaos on the base paths and generating runs and, and bases and just an incredible series for Ricky Henderson. And it was official. Ten years into his career, Ricky Henderson was finally a World Series champion. And you might think of this as the pinnacle for Henderson, but it's worth noting, A, he has another almost 15 years to his career after this. But also, in reality, this is really more the moment, like you ever ride a roller coaster, especially the older ones, and you're going to the top of that first hill, and it's clack. But then you get to like the last couple, of the clack, 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 and you're like at the precipice of something great, of something crazy that's just going to blow your mind. And that's where we're at. We're at the final clack. The real fun is about to begin here because 1990 is a year for the ages for Ricky Henderson. Across 136 games, he hits 325 while leading the league in OBP with a 439 mark. He also leads the league in OPS with a 1.016 mark, which is good for a 189 OPS plus. Also, he led the league in uh, stolen bases with 65. And in runs with 119, he hit 28 home runs, 33 doubles, and 3 triples as well. He's an all-star that year as well as the Silver Slugger, but more importantly, he wins his first and only MVP. He led all AL hitters with 9.9 war, which is a full 2.4 war more than the next highest hitter, Cal Ripken Jr. That's how thoroughly he dominated that season. Henderson is incredible all year, but was particularly effective in June, where he hit uh, 341 with five home runs, 15 stolen bases, and 20 runs scored in just 23 games. Or in July, he was also incredible, where he hit 352 with seven home runs, nine stolen bases, and 22 runs scored in 23 games. 
His dominance helps drive the engine of Oakland that year, who goes on to win 103 games that year, running away with the AL West, and make a return to the playoffs. In the ALCS, Henderson is solid, hitting 294 in four games with a run scored, three RBIs and two stolen bases as Oakland sweeps Boston to return to the World Series for the third year in a row. Ricky is great in the championship, hitting 333 with a 444 OBP with a home run and two doubles and three stolen bases. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough as the A's would fall to Cincinnati in four games and was considered an enormous upset. It was considered a choke job. There was no other way to look at it. It was a huge upset. But even with that, all in all, it was one hell of a season for Henderson at the age of 31. Now, to give you an idea of just how this sort of weighed on the A's, here's Dennis Eckersley talking about that World Series. Some people had some great years on this club, said Eckersley. We won our division and we won a pennant, but we'll always be remembered now for getting our bleeps kicked. I'm sorry, Nick. We did everything but win the World Series, and we didn't look good doing it. I, I said before that if we didn't win the World Series, it meant we choked. That's what we did. And those are obviously harsh words for someone suffering the bitter pangs of defeat. And Eckersley was never exactly known for mincing words. But you have to wonder if there was a sort of hangover for the A's in 1991 after such a tough loss as the whole team struggled. They won just 84 games that year. They finished fourth in the AL West. Just everyone really had a pretty difficult season. Henderson was still great, but he still, for him, struggled. He had just 268 with a 400 OBP and an 823 OPS, which was still good for a 135 OPS plus, to go along with 18 home runs and 17 doubles and 105 runs scored. He did lead the American League in steals with 58, and that year he actually makes the 10th and final All-Star game of his career as well. Now... Perhaps between that loss and the weight of that and the multiple deep runs in the playoffs and the wear and tear of the year before, it probably all finally took their toll on the A's in 1992 because everyone, seemingly, including Henderson, struggled with injuries that year. He played in just 117 games that season. When he played, he was very good, hitting 283 with a 426 OBP and 883 OPS, which is good for a 155 OPS+. Plus. He hit 15 home runs with 48 stolen bases and scored just 77 runs, but he did have two separate stints on the injured list, and it was just a slog for the whole season. Now, this is funny as, by the way, just for the record, before I move on, I mentioned he scored just 77 runs. That's only the third time since 1980. Now, it's 1990, what, 1992? It's the third time since 1980 that he failed to score at least 100 runs. So in 9 of 12 seasons so far since 1980, he has scored at least 100 runs. That's absolutely incredible. I just felt that worth pointing out. Now, despite all the injuries, the A's still win the division by six games and head back to the playoffs. Unfortunately, though, they lose the ALCS to Toronto in six games. Henderson struggles in the series because while he had a 370 OBP, and scores six runs. He doesn't have a single extra base hit and steals just two bases. So struggle being relative. He still is incredibly productive. Just wasn't Ricky Henderson productive. Now, that ends 1992. And to end things on a slightly down note for today, 1993 saw an end to the A's run of success. 
Canseco had been traded to Texas the year before, and McGuire played in just 27 games in 1993, so the team obviously struggles immensely. And with the writing on the wall, the A's pivoted towards a rebuild. McGuire was already 29, uh, they just moved Canseco, it, it seemed clear that there was probably no place for the A.J. Henderson on a, on a rebuilding team. And so at the deadline, his second tenure at the A's, albeit a far more successful tenure, was at an end, and he was traded to Toronto. Now, in my opinion, this reaches a, a good break point in Henderson's career, heading into the final 10 years or so of his career. As I like to think of his wandering years, his, almost like his Ronin years, as he'll bounce around to many different teams, and he has a lot of success and is valuable player still, but it's, it, I think this is a good halfway point, a good time for us to take a break and save some for part two of our, our our series here on Ricky Henderson because we've already gone long I believe we're already over an hour and 10 minutes and we're not even like I said we got 10 years left we'll pick things up next week by wrapping up Henderson's career there's still plenty to come still plenty of things to talk about here uh especially here in Toronto where over the next couple of years but and then after that we still have to rank him on our list spoiler we will be shaking up the top 10 and potentially, honestly, even the top five. We'll see, so uh, stay tuned next week for that. And then, depending on time, I I might even add in some players who I think are today's versions of Ken Griffey Jr. or Ricky Henderson who just embody that cool attitude with the born-to-play-the-game player mold. And then we'll probably even try and rank them and see where they fall amongst our list even already. I'm really excited to do that, and I think it'll be a, a fun exercise So until then, I will see you next Saturday. Uh, You can reach the podcast at LB Legacies over on Twitter. And you can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter. Uh, You can also email the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com. Like I said, if you want to talk about a player, you have a problem with my rankings, anything you want to talk about, I am here for you. Anything I can do better on the podcast, then I'm open to it all. Reach out to me. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. I know it just got started. I say get outside and do something or go play some baseball. All right, go watch some baseball. Enjoy, folks, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Long Ball Legacies. I'm Daniel Port. Have a great one.